Um, Malachi chapter 3, let's jump into it. Uh, and let me set it up like this. I'm just going to give you guys a warning, okay? I'm going to warn you up front. I'm going to, um, uh, uh, you, sh- you should know this about me, okay? I'm just giving you this. Uh, so between 2007 and 2011, um, I, it's been told, uh, I was in Chicago getting a PhD, right? And I was getting a PhD in theology. And I was getting a PhD in theology, writing original research, doing academic research, speaking at conferences, being a nerd. I want you to know this up front. This is important. I, I was doing all this because I'm a huge nerd, and I like to deep dive, and I like to think critically and deeply about important issues. And occasionally, it just so aligns that my nerd passion and the Bible's need for some nerd passion come together in a beautiful marriage. And friends, today is one of those days, right? Malachi 3, they're talking about some nerdy stuff. They're talking about economics in the ancient Near East. There's discussion about the transition from a barter economy to a currency-based commerce system. And we are going to jump all into that. I want you to know this up front. I'm going to try to make Semitic economics fascinating for you here tonight, okay? So this is, this is a pretty lofty goal, but I think we're going to go there, and I think we're going to achieve it. Because what's at stake, if we can understand Malachi 3, 6 through 12, uh, is a, a very practical conversation about the way we think about money um, as it relates to our Christian life. If we can really understand what the Bible says about money and the way we think about it and the way we use it, it's going to actually set us up to have a Christian life uh, that I think is significant and meaningful. So I want us to really jump into this, and I'm warning you up front, I'm going to talk about a lot of nerdy things. I promise to try to make it as interesting as possible, okay? Okay, just fair, fair warning. Everyone knows, everyone in the room? Okay, disclaimers out there. So if you haven't gotten up and, and left at this point, just know this is like that point in Disney where they're having you check your seatbelts, right? You're checking your nerd seatbelts. Oh, you're all locked in. The nerd roller coaster is beginning right now. And as we jump on the nerd roller coaster, let me invite you guys to pray with me so that um, uh, we can just ask Jesus to bless our time. Jesus, um, as we jump into Malachi 3, uh, a text that pastors often use to talk about tithing and right before uh, capital campaigns, yes, Jesus, this is very much about giving money to the church. But Jesus, it's so much more. It's, it's about the way we think about money relative to you uh, and the way we uh, think about money and how it impacts our lifestyle. And so help us to really lean in and to get all of the goodness out of this text. And it's in your name that I pray. Amen. Amen. All right, Malachi chapter 3, starting verse 6. Malachi writes, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. One of the things I like about the prophetic texts, and in particular Malachi, uh, is that he will often, as he's about to address one of these questions of unfairness, he's going to start off with a promise. Last week he said, remember, Jesus is coming, he's going to make this all better. The Messiah is going to come, therefore that helps us to deal with these issues of injustice and evil, right? So he's going to lead with a promise, and then he's going to start chopping that wood. Then he's going to start going after our character. So... What Malachi does here is he says, hey guys, remember, I the Lord do not change. He's quoting Yahweh here. God is unchangeable in his character. His character is consistent. It doesn't waver. He doesn't call good bad. He always calls good good and bad bad. He's consistent in that. He is our standard of morality and, and understanding of reality, right? Okay, that's how that works. 
Now, as a companion, just as a little aside, uh, you may have heard me say this before, but it's true that what we worship is what we become. Whatever it is you worship, that's what you become. If you worship money, you're going to become like money. Okay, so just as a great example, rich young ruler goes to Jesus, and he says, Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He's a rich young ruler. Money has been given to him. Inheritance has been given to him. And so he thinks about inheritance. He worships inheritance. And Jesus says, you have to get rid of all of your money, all of your possessions, and then you're going to have eternal life. And he walked away sad because he was very wealthy. That's what it says. What's going on there? The rich young ruler worships money. And so he's becoming like money. Everything he's thinking is money and inheritance. That's how he operates. That's his economic worldview. It's true that whatever you worship, you're going to become like that. If you worship the wrong things, you're going to become the wrong things. If you worship Jesus, you're going to become like Jesus. If you worship Yahweh, the God of the universe, you're going to become like Yahweh. And so if God is consistent in his character and he never changes, then it follows that if we worship God, we are going to increasingly become consistent in our character. Our character is never going to change. And God puts that out there as he starts I, the Lord, never change. I am unchangeable. And so you would expect if you're following that God, you're an unchangeable, consistent, charactered person. But oh no, God is setting things up here. He's going to show us that we, Israel is not, and we, people, are not consistent. He says this in verse 7. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. In other words, they are inconsistent in their character. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. God says this, you are turning aside, you're inconsistent in your character, there is something wrong. God is consistent in character, his people are not, therefore it's clear they're not worshiping him. They're worshiping something else, something is disconnected here. And he's identified that there's a problem, and he's going to begin to insert his uh, prescription of what's going wrong here. He's going to address this. And here's what the people say. But you say, how shall we return? In other words, how are we so far away that we need to return? Give us an example, Yahweh, of our shady character. Give us an example of how we're being inconsistent. They're just making an honest appeal back to God. Seems fair. And here's what God says in verse 8. He says, or asks, will a man rob God? And the answer you would understand here is no. Like, no, why would, why would humanity rob God? That just seems like the worst bank heist, like, in the, in the world, right? Even Ocean's Eleven is like, that's too dangerous, right? Even the Fast and the Furious gang are like, yeah, listen, we have, like, taken on a nuclear submarine in Russia in the ice, right? That seems impossible, but, you know, it was doable. We accomplished that. You're trying to rob God? Can't be done, right? Don Toretto is like, no, I want no part of robbing God. That seems to be the understood answer. Will a man rob God, yet you are robbing me? And they ask. But you say, how have we robbed you? They're incredulous. They're in disbelief. Wait, wait, whoa, whoa. You're saying we have inconsistent character. You're saying that the issue is you're trying to rob me. Well, like, give us an example of our inconsistent character. God, give us a clear example of how we're robbing you. And God answers. In your tithes and contributions, verse 9, you are cursed with a curse for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. The whole nation of you, the whole nation of you. Every last one of you, 
this is where there is some inconsistency in your character. Now let's pause here. I want us to be very clear on what God means by tithes and offerings. Because I think if you grew up in Baptist culture, grew up in church culture, you know that the tithe is that really awkward moment in the middle of a worship service where it's in between singing and the guy coming up to speak. And they're like, hey, here's a good idea. Let's just pass around a bucket and people put money in it. Sure, that makes sense, right? It's just that kind of moment in the worship, right? This is not what they're talking about. Let's, let's be clear on what they're talking about. Here is, um, I, I want to try to de- define for us what a tithe is and how it's properly understood in this time period. Remember, Malachi is being written about maybe, we'll say, 500 B.C. Uh, the Israel has been deported into Babylon and then... Um, or into Assyria first, and then into Babylon, and then Persia took over, and then uh, the Persian king sent a, a, a party back to reestablish Jerusalem. Um, the, uh, the, the priest came back and tried to establish the Old Testament to create a society based around the Bible. Um, it was unsafe, remember? It's like the wild, wild west, or Brit used this analogy, it's like the purge kind of scenario going on. And so it wasn't safe, so Nehemiah comes back, tries to build the wall, and as he's building the wall, this is when Malachi is walking around and in his prophetic ministry calling people to account. This is what's going on there. So this is probably sometime around 500 B.C., and um, they, they are trying to understand uh, what it means to tithe in 500 BC, and this is a little bit, there's a little bit of a problem here, because tithing in the Old Testament, there are three types of tithes, uh, and you're going to see this on screen. A a tithe doesn't just mean 10%. A tithe actually refers to three different things. It refers to a uh, a priest, a feast, and the poor. It's a priest offering, or an offering for the Levites. It's a feast offering, And it's an offering for the poor, the widowed, and the orphan. That's what a tithe is. And typically a tithe is not 10%, um, although that's how it transliterates out. A tithe, if you factor all in, it's actually about 23.3% of your yield, of your harvest. When the tithe first is mentioned in Leviticus, this is in 1300 B.C., right? About the time Leviticus is being written, it's somewhere in that area Uh, 1300 B.C. is about when writing begins in Hebrew. Before 1300 B.C., there's no writing. It's just an oral tradition. And about 1300 B.C., letters come in, you know, type font. The first type font, which is a, you know, pen quill and parchment paper comes into being. And about that time, when Leviticus is being written, the way they would understand a tithe is that um, people in these households, they would, it's a very agrarian society in 1300 B.C. People would plant crops and their crops would yield a harvest and they would they would round up the harvest and they would bring it in and they would weigh it all out like you can just imagine a bunch of scales any of you guys shop at whole foods kind of that situation you know there's like the trend of farm to table and you go to whole foods and you you know you're like oh i just need some barley and like you scoop it up and you weigh it and then the machine you just like you know abraham recommended you put the little barcode on it and you get it scanned and you put it right you take it home right or now since amazon owns whole foods you just get online and you're like i need one pound of barley Yes, I'll have it delivered by drone in 24 hours. Thank you, right? So it's basically that, just minus the drones, right? So they're, they're weighing everything, and they, they weigh everything in their harvest, and they take 23% of that, that harvest, they weigh it out, they put it in three different baggies, okay? And they bring it with them to the temple. And here's what they would do with their tithe in 1300 B.C. They would give one bag to the priests, the Levites. They'd give one bag 
uh, for the, they keep one bag for themselves, kind of set aside, and they give one bag to be used for the poor. Now, in 1300 BC, this is a barter economy. And you guys, I'm sure, because you're smart, you know what a barter economy is. There's no money, there's no currency. So the way that you got goods and services is you would barter uh, this grain, this weighted grain. And, you know, you would show up at the marketplace. We have a picture of this that's kind of used, uh, if you can throw that on, right? So it's something like that. See, you see the guy on the right who's kind of measuring out some grain, and then the guy on the left is, is kind of trying to buy some fruit there, and the guy who's selling the fruit is weighing it out, right? So if you're going to go buy some food, you would take some grain, and you would go up to the merchant, and you would say, I would like all these apples and, you know, all these oranges, and he would say, okay, that's going to be about, you know, half a pound of grain, and you would weigh it out, and he would say, this is a balanced exchange, and he would give it to you, and he would take that grain and either make food for his family, or he would go somewhere else in the marketplace, weigh it out, and he would trade for goods and services. This is how it operated. Well, the priests, the Levites in particular, uh, they didn't have land. The Levites didn't have a way to grow agriculture, harvest it, and trade it for goods and services. And so they were reliant on the, the, the nature, the, the good nature, the character of the people and their communities to give them bags of grain. That's how the Levites were provided for, both in terms of their meals, but also in terms of their goods and services. And so this is really interesting what's happening here because um, the Levites get established as this ministry class, this group of people, their responsibility was to take care of everybody. The Levites did four things, and it's in your bulletin if you write this in. The Levites did four things. They, prov- they took care of health. They, took care, they were the police. Um, they were the justice system, uh, and they were the educators. This is what their assigned role was. So think about this. If you lived in 1300 B.C., and um, you got like an ingrown toenail, right? You're not going to the mani-pedi place, right? There's no mani-pedi place, I'm sorry, right? No MC spa, there's no like Yanni music playing when you get in, there's no cucumber mask, right? That whole experience is not going on. No, if you're an ingrown toenail, you go to the Levite and you go, okay, which one of the Levites is, is good with toes, right? Okay, okay, you're good with toes, okay, you know, Aaron, okay, come on over here, right? Um, and you're like, hey, I need you to take care of the ingrown toenail. And while you're down there, could you take care of the calluses and the cuticles? Give me a cut and red, like a cherry red just on the toes. That'd be great, right? That, that's how that worked. They were responsible for all the health. If you had some kind of a bodily issue, you would go to the Levites. That's why if you read through Leviticus, there's clear prescription for all of these medical ailments. Uh, you know, if a man has this, he should be set outside the community for a certain number of days, then he can be brought back in because they're concerned with public health. The Levites were responsible for managing public health in the community, for taking care of everything. And they did this essentially for free, without payment. In a barter economy, the way that you showed honor for the Levite who was taking care of you is you would tithe to him. You would give him a bag of grain, right? That's your priestly tithe, okay? And then he could take it and get goods and services. Or uh, consider that it's policing, right? Let's say you're living in, you know, your tent, and the people in the tent right next to you are playing rap music really late at night. And it's not good rap music, right? It's bad rap music. You're like, come on, man. Really? Atlanta-based rap music? You know I like East Coast. Come on, right? And so you get frustrated. You go over to your neighbor. You're like, hey, listen, I know you like Ludacris, but if you're going to come in here, uh, bring in some Pharaoh Mosh, right? 
I want someone who's balladic in the way that he does things, okay? I need a ballad. I need a story. I need a narrative. And they're like, no, I'm only playing Atlanta-based rap music. And you guys get into this, like, heated argument, and you're really mad, and he's waking up your kids. You're like, what's going on? You have no police system to call. There's no 911. You call the Levites, and the Levites would come and settle disputes. In fact, if you read through Leviticus, there's all of this text in there about how to settle disputes. Why? Because the Levites were the police. They're not only the health people, they're the police people. Furthermore, um, once a dispute got dealt with and there were charges filed, you needed to kind of have a, a final say on this. You would go to the Levites. They're also the judicial system. They're the judges. They're saying what's good and bad and right and wrong, and they're enforcing the law of the land. Finally, they're the educators. If you have kids and they want to study, they're curious, they're literate, you send them to the Levites and they would train them. Okay? They run the public education system of that time period. All colleges, all universities, they get them ready to go to be productive members of society. And they do this all for free. Now, the people look at this arrangement and they say, um, this is an amazing value to us as a society, as a Hebrew people. So rather than just let them continue to do this for free, we're going to, again, we're going to give them a tithe. And every family says, you know, once a month, we're going to take in our, our money, or once a harvest, we're going to take in everything, and we're going we're gonna to tithe a portion of this to the priest because they bring good value to us. That's what a tithe is. It's not only to take care of the Levites, right? The second thing, so that's the priests, right? You tithe to the Levites, to the priestly class, right? The second bag is something you actually put aside, right? And here's why. Um, all good Jews in this time period, once a year, they would take their families and they would go to Jerusalem for the feast, the different feasts of booze and different feasts like that. And it was a time to celebrate and practice community, okay? It's a giant party once a year or a couple times a year in Jerusalem. This was basically a vacation. You would get your family from wherever you lived, you would get on horses and you would go into, you know, Jerusalem and there would be a giant party, there's lots of food, there's lots of stuff going on, dancing, concerts, music, laser shows, maybe, I don't know, fireworks, right? It was just a great time and it, you can imagine this in an agrarian society, most of your day is you wake up, you work in the fields, you come home, you eat lunch, you work in the fields, you come home, you eat dinner, you go to sleep because there's no electricity, so once it gets dark, you go to sleep. You wake up and you do this, and you do this over and over and over and over and over again until harvest time. And now that you have your, your tithe ready, you can go, family, we've worked hard, let's celebrate. Let's go into Jerusalem. It's the family vacation to Jerusalem. National Lampoon's Jerusalem vacation, right? That's what's happening. You get in to the car, and you go down, and there's a lot of hijinks and shenanigans and chicanery that takes place, but, you know, it's a good time. This would have been basically by saying and setting up this tithe process to set aside for the feast, you are building in this expectation that families are supposed to rest together. And so the first tithe goes for the priest. The second tithe goes for you and your family to ensure that you have a regular rest and celebration and worship and Shabbat process. The third one was for the poor and the orphans and the widows. And so you would set this aside. You would either let the priest distribute this as they had need. Or, I mean, I guess in some cases, if you're walking down the street and you see somebody, you just kind of toss them a bag of grain. And they would be able to take that grain, go to the marketplace, get food, and barter with it for goods and services. This is how the tithe was set up and meant to be run in 1300 B.C. Right? And so what God is saying here is, you guys are robbing me in terms of your tithe and your, con uh, uh, your contribution. Now, 
I, I think if you're not careful, what, what you may understand about this is that in 500 BC, they're still having a problem with the harvest tithe process. It's like all of these um, Israelites are just storing all of this grain in their house, and they're like, ha, ah, I'm keeping this for myself. But this is probably not what's going on, because an important shift has taken place uh, between 1300 BC and 500-ish BC when Malachi is taking place. Think about it. Everyone in Israel who grew up on this system has now been deported to another country, Assyria, Babylon, Persia. And these countries are very sophisticated and cosmopolitan. And this shift, this very interesting, significant shift takes place between 1300 BC and 500 BC. And it's called the development of a currency system. In other words, countries would create these metal coins and they would be weighted differently. A shekel, a talent, or a Roman coin or a Greek coin, they would be weighted differently and they would carry the equivalent of a weight of grain with them. And that's how you would now do an economy. So what's going on is you have a kind of a partial uh, barter economy that's going on and a partial currency economy that's going on. And it's taking place at the same time. And people are kind of figuring out, doing the metric system, crossing over. It's kind of like when you come back from a foreign country and you're doing the currency exchange. This is what's going on. But this hasn't been going on for a while. This is a revolutionary shift in the way that all of a global culture thinks about the exchange of goods and services. And so all these people who grow up in these very sophisticated, deported countries, Persia, Babylon, Syria, they're now coming back to Israel, and they're not bringing a grain barter system back. They're bringing back a currency system. So they have all this money that they can use to exchange for goods and services. And here's probably what's going on. What's going on is people are saying, you know what? We have money now. We're not exchanging grain for goods and services. And when Aaron sets up the Levitical code in Leviticus, he has a grain economy in mind. And because we don't live in a grain economy anymore, tithing doesn't apply to us. We're not going to read that literally anymore. Um, we can't literally apply that anymore. So therefore, tithing and giving and taking care of the poor and honoring the priests doesn't count anymore. So we get now an opportunity in freedom in Yahweh to hold and to hoard all of our currency um, in our own homes. That's what's taking place here. And so the type of robbing that they're doing in tithes and offerings is that they're making probably some kind of distinction uh, between a literal reading of the grain economy given the advent of this currency economy. They are thinking of themselves too sophisticated to give to God's people, right? That's what's going on here. They are robbing God of tithes and contributions. And here's what God says in verse 10. He says, bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be uh, food in my house and thereby put me to the test as the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need, I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all the nations will call you blessed for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. In other words, he says, listen, you guys can squabble all you want about the shift from a barter economy to a currency economy, all you want. But at the end of the day, the, the, the transaction is still the same. Bring everything you're required to into this storehouse. People are keeping it in their storehouse, in their own homes. And he's saying, no, 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 no. You bring it to the storehouse, there would be a storehouse outside of maybe a synagogue or a temple. 
you are to bring everything you've got and put it in there so that it can be redistributed as it needs to among the people of God. The priest can be taken care of. You can have uh, something paid for for your visit to Jerusalem. The poor can be taken care of. And you watch what happens, God says, if I will not use that system I set up to really bring blessing on you. That's his proclamation. And he's not talking about material blessing. He's not saying you're going to be rich if you do this. He said, I'm going to bring my, my blessing and my favor on everybody who does this. Now, having said all this, this seems rather esoteric, right? Like, you're like, wow, okay, ancient Near Eastern monetary practices. What does this have to do with me, right? What possibly can this mean for me and my life right now? What, what does this idea of a whole tithe um, and uh, conversations about shifts uh, do for me right now? What is, practically, Doug, help me out. And I think there's something incredibly practical here. I think there's four things we can think through, and they're on your sheet. Here's what you can take away from this whole passage. Number one, <coughs> um, I think character matters, and I think God starts with character. And so I want to have just a little bit of a conversation about character from this passage. I think, or I want you to write down this idea. The habits you form before 40 will form you after 40. The habits you form before 40 will form you after 40. God says, my character is consistent and I'm not changing. Therefore, he calls us, if we worship him, um, to, to follow him in the way he lives. And if we do so, if we really worship him, then we will see that our character will increasingly become more and more like Jesus. And I just want to have this very practical conversation with you here. Right now, as a college student, right now, as a, uh, a young 20-something, you are starting to form your own habits for the first time in your life, right? Okay? Um, and I just wanted you to, to know, if you look at kind of years and years of biochemical research on how the brain develops, all these habits that you're going to form before 40, they start to form you. In other words, they start to dictate your life after 40. And I want to call you to remember that the habits, or just to consider that the habits you form now, I, maybe ask yourself this question, are these the kind of habits God wants me to form, right? Or am I forming the habits that God has formed? Or to put it another way, are the habits that I'm picking up on the habits of Jesus, right? So just briefly, I want to have this conversation. There are things that you are, you know, thinking about probably doing or maybe doing right now. Okay, some of you are 18, right? You turned 18, uh, and for the first time in your life, you can consider whether you want to smoke cigarettes or not, right? And we can have a conversation all day about whether cigarettes are gross or cool or whatever, right? Uh, all of these things I'm talking about right now exist under the banner of something called Christian liberties, which means you have freedom in Christ to either do them or not do them, okay? So everything I'm saying is under that provision. H here's the appeal I want to make. Let's say you start smoking cigarettes now. I want you to know this. You're going to choose to smoke cigarettes up to age 40. After age 40, cigarettes are going to choose to be smoked by you for you, right? It's probably, probably going to become such a, a rhythmic part of your life that after 40, it's going to be so hard to break that habit if you choose to do so. Now, God's gracious, okay? And he, you know, he's a chain breaker and all that stuff, right? We sing the song. But um, I just want to say this. Uh, smoking is a choice you can make. You have freedom in Christ to make. Just be aware, after 40, it's a lot harder to break that habit. Let's choose an, another uh, popular topic here. Uh, uh, alcohol, right? Um, now, none of you know about this, right? Because you're all Baptists and we don't drink. 
Um, but there's this stuff out there called alcohol. Um, there's beer. There is uh, wine. There's hard liquor, right? And when you turn 21 in the United States and you're a Christian, God gives you freedom to consider whether you want to ingest alcohol or not, right? Um, and there's conversations to be had on both sides. But let's say you start picking this up. Here's all I want to remind you of. Um, before 40, like having a drink or two or going out for friends or whatever is something you choose to do. It's something that you begin to form. After 40, it begins to form you. Drinking becomes such a part of your daily life that it's possible it could be uh, something that uh, becomes addictive or becomes a really important part of your life to a point that if you try to stop, it's going to be much more difficult. Or I don't think that's probably, that's not my suspicion. My suspicion is not that that's going to be something difficult to do. My suspicion is not that your drinking is going to be hard to stop. It's going to be drinking too much is hard to stop, right? Uh, because everyone who does this tends to say after 40, man, I drink way too much. Uh, you know, I started with one glass and now it's 70, right? And I feel like maybe 70 is too much. I don't know. Um, so here's the thing, right? There, again, we can have this conversation about you can drink, but don't get drunk and, and all this stuff. I'm just saying this, as you're picking up these habits, as you, for the first time, are exercising your will, remember, God does not change. His character doesn't change. And so are the habits that you're forming the habits that Jesus wants you to form? That's all I'm asking you. I'm not telling you to smoke or don't smoke. I'm not telling you to drink or don't drink. I'm simply asking you to think about character. Because what you do now, although it seems harmless and consequence-free, after 40, there are consequences. And really before 40, there are consequences. You just feel it more at 40. I'm 35, about to be 36. And I'm just telling you this. All the habits of things that I did in life, like playing way too much basketball and running, I am feeling them now, and I'm only 35, about to be 36. I was doing a workout this morning, and I'm doing burpees, and I have run so much in my life. Like, I used to run 100 miles a day, or I'm sorry, 100 miles a week, sorry, 100 miles a day. You're like, oh my gosh, are you a robot? Yes, I am. Um, so I used to run 100 miles a week, and now when I do burpees, my knees click, so I can actually uh, keep count of how many burpees I'm doing by my knees popping. So I'm like, uh, click, one. Okay, there it is. Like, those habits that I, I did early on, they're now starting to form me. I walk differently. I move differently. I ate differently now. And I'm not 40 yet. Those kind of character habits that you're going to be picking up, the words you say, the movies you see, the types of books you read, the type of conversations you have, whether you gossip or not, all of these things that you're doing now that you think fun and careless and carefree because you're a young 20-something, after 40, they're an ingrained part of your personality, and it's hard to break them. So just asking you the question, are the habits you're forming now the kind of habits Jesus wants you to form, right? That's all I'm asking, or all I'm saying. Number two, um, I think something we can take away from this passage is this. Remember to help church leaders help you. Remember to help church leaders help you. Church leaders, pastors, ministers, people on staff, you know what they want to do for you? They want to help you. They pick up on the Levitical tradition. Their whole, I mean, I, I'm a church leader, right? My whole job, what I think about for most of the day is how can I help you more? Right? How can I spend more time with you one-on-one? -on -one? How, how can I lead in an effective way that really ministers to you and helps you in your life? Most of the people on my staff spend most of their waking hours thinking about that. I know Pastor David, I know Danny, I know John Marks, I know Lindsay uh, Giot. I know they all just think all the time, how can we help our people more? Why? Because the Levitical tradition sets it up for us. They're the priests. And this side of the cross, we, become, we all become priests uh, of Jesus, right? And so what we tend to think about is how we can help one another in Christ. 
right? And we're thinking about that all the time. Something I, th- I want to encourage you to think about in light of this passage is all these people who are leaders in ministry, they want to help me. How can I help them? And I think you can help them in at least two, maybe three ways. Number one, when they ask you to meetings, like, hey, let's go hang out for coffee, say yes, right? When the Bertha lots or the curls or the hairs or the Frommens or Steve Price says, hey, let's go grab food, don't think in your mind, oh, they're just asking me out, this out of pity. Oh, no, no, don't do the polite, like, southern thing. You're like, oh, no, that's so kind. No, say yes. Why? Because these people want to pour into you. We want to pour into you. When anyone on our staff, when any of the life group leaders, uh, when the Sirglines want to um, hang out with you in Disney, say yes. We want to spend time with you. We want to pour into you. Help us help you by saying yes. Don't say no, especially if we're offering to pay for food. Um, number two. Um, remember to value their value, okay? They bring, church leaders bring a tremendous value to their life. Just value it, just value it. And maybe that influences the way that you think about giving, right? And and maybe you give a little more generously. Why? Because you want to bring that tithe in the storehouse so it can be distributed so that it can help minister to people. These, These people on church staff, I don't care whether you go here or another church, whether you move from Orlando and go to be part of a church in another area, just Give in a way, value them in a way that communicates that they bring value to you. Make it reciprocal. Make it a spiritual barter system where they take care of you and you take care of them, right? That's number two. Uh, number three, pray for them. Just pray for your leaders, right? Church leaders care. We spend way too much time thinking about you. I can just say this. I spend so much time thinking about how I can take care of you guys. My wife has to, because she loves me, tell me to turn it off, right? Work-life balance. Right? When I'm at home and I'm trying to watch the Fast and the Furious, I'm like, oh, cool, Fast and the Furious. What if we can do an event where we race cars like this in Cuba? No? Shouldn't do that? No? Okay, cool. Right? Because I love you guys and I care about you and I want to do cool stuff. So pray for us. Pray that God really blesses our lives. Pray for the church. Pray for your life group leaders. Pray for your master class teacher. Pray for the people who meet with you one-on-one. Pray for us. Uh, just to kind of tell you a cool story about this, just because I want to communicate this idea that we help our church leaders who help us, right? There's a guy named Dawson Trotman who's the subject of my dissertation. And Dawson Trotman was just this guy in California, living in Southern California in the early 1900s. Um, and he was a pagan, wasn't a Christian, working at a lumber yard. He liked this girl, so he started going to a church meeting because he liked a girl, missionary dating. Um, and uh, he gets saved, kind of going to this church meeting. And once he gets saved, the people in his lumberyard are like, hey, Dawson, you should tell your story. So he gets up and shares his testimony of how he gets saved, you know, at his job. And all these people are kind of, like, engaged. They're like, wow, you're a really good communicator. So all these churches kind of start asking him to come and share his story at all, all these church events. And he does and kind of develops this reputation as being a good evangelist and a good communicator. And so one day this sailor comes up to him and says, hey, Dawson, uh, I'm a sailor. Um, but uh, I don't have a lot of time for this. I don't have time to go to seminary. Can you train me in how to do ministry like you do ministry? And he goes, sure, you know, I can train you to do that. So he, he kind of trains this guy in basic evangelism and discipleship and sends the guy to go out on, on, a, on a leave on the ship. The guy goes off for three months and then he comes back and there's like six guys. He's like, hey, while I was on the ship, I led like six guys to Christ. Can we like come to your house and you can train us in how to do ministry? And he's like, okay, sure. So he li- he's working kind of in this lumberyard at a gas station. He has an apartment. He has a wife. So they come in, and they're, like, staying with him. 
uh, and they would stay with him for months at a time. And his wife would cook some food, and they would just do Bible studies. And then he would send them off to go on these ships, and they would go off for three months. And they'd come back, and there would be like 50 of them, right? Well, pretty soon there were like 100 guys living in his apartment uh, on these ships, right? And they, they built bunk beds and like closet spaces and all this stuff. And it was becoming just bananas in there. And so all of them got together, and they had this meeting one time. They said, hey, this is not sustainable. Dawson is having to spend way too much time working to be able to fund our eating habit, right? And so they said, how about this? We're all in the, uh, the Navy. We're all getting paid. Um, let's just pull him in and tell him we'll give him 10% of our salary each to fund his lifestyle so he can continue ministering to us. So they pull him aside. They're like, Dawson, we'll each pay you X you know, number of dollars every month out of our naval pay if you'll just quit your job and, and go full-time ministering to us. And he goes, okay, cool. And so they did that, and they helped him buy his first house. And they, they bought it specifically so that he could have 100 people who live there all the time. It was like this beautiful little life group that never left, right? And some of you are in that life group, Hunter's Creek. And, um, <laughs> right? And, and that was how that happened. And so he started, he, he just became their official minister, right? And he was the minister to all these sailors, right? That's how it works in church world. Like, we're not professionals. We didn't go to school to become professionals, to have this career path. We didn't become professionals to become life group leaders. We just love you guys, right? We're ministering to you. And so one of the ways you value us is you go, hey, we should maybe give some money so that they can have a salary, so that they can not have to worry about having to go raise their support on their own, and they can just spend all their waking hours figuring out how to minister to us. So just value the people who bring your life value, right? Okay, cool. So... Help church leaders help you. The habits that form you before 40 will form you after 40. That, that's, just, that's just the appetizer. This is the main course. Okay, you guys ready for this? From Malachi 3, here's what I think you guys can really um, pick up on. And it's this very simple principle. Give, then live. Give, then live. Give, then live. You guys are going to get jobs. Uh, maybe you have part-time jobs. You work at Universal, Disney, whatever. Uh, maybe you have full-time jobs, maybe you're graduating and you're getting your first full-time jobs. You're making an income for the first time. You got your own money, right? How should you approach this money? If Malachi becomes um, something that's uh, prescriptive for us, what does it tell us? It tells us this, number one, give. And number two, live. In other words, you're going to have this tension in your world between two competing forces. What you can give to ministry and what you can live on for your lifestyle. And unfortunately in America right now, most American Christians think the opposite. Live and then give. In other words, once money hits my bank account, the first thing I'm thinking is, how can I spend this on me, right? Can I buy a car? Uh, I can't afford a car because I work part-time. Can I buy a taco at Taco Bell, right? I'm hungry. That's what I want. I'm going to have it. What do I want right now? Can I afford this? Yeah, right? And then we spend and we spend and we spend and we look in our bank account and we're like, oh man, only 80 cents left. What do I do with that? Oh, I'll give it, right? And that's what we do. We give as an afterthought. Oh yeah, the guy talked about giving today. Uh, here's $5, right? And again, if that's you and that's where you are, that's fine. Let me just challenge you. I think if Malachi were here, he would challenge you to flip that. And rather than saying, I'm going to make my lifestyle the priority and I'm going to restrict my giving, what if, what if I made giving my priority? And I let giving restrict my lifestyle. What if my lifestyle took a hit because I'm trying to fund ministry? 
what if my lifestyle took a hit because I'm trying to make sure that we have amazing life groups at First Orlando that are bringing people to put faith in Jesus and growing them in discipleship? What if I made giving the priority? And what if my giving was a priority in the three ways that Malachi prescribes in terms of the tithe? And that's number four in here. And here's what they are. It's this, church, then savings, then generosity. Church, then savings, then generosity. And here's how I want to challenge you to think about giving. You're going to give, then live. Here's how I want to challenge you to think about this from Malachi. Number one, let's say you get a windfall of cash. You start a new job. Maybe you get a bonus. You know, maybe a relative uh, just decides they're going to give you a giant check, right? You know, grandma is just feeling, feeling kind of froggy. And it's like, you know what? I'm mailing you a thousand bucks, right? Okay, what do you do with this? You're like, put it in a one dollar bills and be like, ah! making it rain son right no don't do that that would be bad here's what you do right i think first you try to give you go okay i'm gonna give to the local church that brings value to my life and so i'm just gonna go give this money i'm gonna take 10 percent of whatever comes in that seems like a pretty good number right i'm gonna take a hundred bucks and i'm just gonna give it in the offering plate on sunday okay and then the next thing i'm gonna do is i'm gonna go hey What's going to take care of me, not in like just a a really frivolous way, but what's really going to treat myself? What's really going to treat my soul? Let me save some money for a rainy day when I really need to just kind of do some rest and do some reflection. I'm going to take 10% and I'm going to put it into savings for a rainy day. Or I'm going to take 10% and I'm going to invest in a meal with my friends where we just fellowship, right? I'm going to take care of myself, my soul. So give first. Do some soul care second. And the third thing you do is you go, I'm going to take a percentage, okay? If we use the 23.3%, I'm going to take 3%. I'm going to take 30 bucks. And I'm going to put that into a poor widow orphan budget budget category in my my life, right? So imagine you just take 30 bucks and you put it in your dash, uh, in your glove compartment, right? You hide it because you've got roommates and they know where that is. You're like, right, you sneak it in there. You put like, uh, I don't know, licorice smell on outside. So when they open it, they're like, oh, licorice, ew, gross, right? Whatever you have to do. Uh, and you hide it. And then let's say you're kind of rolling down the road. You're on Colonial, right, in a certain part. And, uh, or maybe one of those roads where people gather because it's high traffic. There's a gentleman or a lady who comes to you, has the sign, right? It's like, we'll fight aliens for food, right? Whatever it says on there to get your attention. And they knock on the window and they're doing this thing. Here's what most of us do, right? When we see that, we see the, the person coming to us and they're panhandling. We do like the, okay, don't look them in the eyes. Lock the door. But we do the look away, lock the door. Like, oh, I'm not locking the door. Click, right? You do like, oh, did I drop my phone over here in this passenger seat? Lock that door too, right? That kind of thing. You kind of do the look away as they pass. You're counting. It's been six seconds they walk past. They're probably good, right? And then we do like the thought in our head where we go, well, if I give them money, maybe they'll just spend it on drugs, right? But I can't give them money, right? I mean, I could go buy them food. Why don't I just go on the Chick-fil-A app and just order it and just tell them, hey, there's a Chick-fil-A over there. I just ordered you some food. It's under candy. Be blessed, right? That's what we're, we're thinking through how to best work through this, uh, right? And then we, we try to justify why we shouldn't give them money, right? Well, I should, I, there's a better way I can spend that money. What if we had 30 bucks in the glove compartment and we just said this, Jesus, I'm going to give to anybody who has need. I don't care who they are. I don't care what they do with it. This is for you. I am caring for the poor and the widows and the orphans around me. I have already created a category just called a Holy Spirit giving category. It's in my glove box. And if you have someone who has need, just bring them to me. 
Now when you roll down, you know, get on Colonial or Kirkman or Violent or wherever you are, and you kind of pull up to a stop sign, you're like waving that person over. You like roll it down, you're like, hey, buddy, come here, come here, come here, right? 30 bucks, you don't have to panhandle, you're good, right? Why? Because you've already created some margin in your life to take care of people. You've said, you know what, Jesus, you have given me all this stuff. I don't, I'm not going to use it for my lifestyle. I'm going to prioritize giving, and it's going to make me feel great to be able to fund and help somebody out. So just, Holy Spirit, as soon as you need something, I've got 30 bucks set aside, just bring them on. What if you did this every month? What if you built in a budget and you're like a $5 Holy Spirit giving fund, right? This is something Natalie and I have picked up on, uh, just, just full disclosure. We just have created a little thing in our budget. We've said this is the Holy Spirit giving thing. And then if one of our friends, we know they're going on a mission trip, and we know they want to do like the, the whole like hit you up, like I want you to pray about this opportunity that's coming, right? Because they always have to frame it, like our missionary friends have to frame it in that language. I want you to pray about this trip I'm going on, which always means I need money for this trip, which I love because I want to support missions. Rather than having to have that awkward thing where you're like, oh, no, sorry, I can't meet with you. You just go, hey, look, I got 30 bucks there, right? Now it's already, it's, it's, you get to be proactive with this. You're no longer reactive about some of these more awkward money conversations. You, you build that in because you prioritize giving and you make your lifestyle something that's second. So I want to challenge you. I think what Malachi would say is this. Christian, if you're following Jesus, give, then live. Give, then live. And when you give, give in this way. Give to your church first. Give to yourself and your soul second. Give to the poor and the needy and the, and the people who are most vulnerable among you third. Just build it in before you get out of bed in the morning. And then worry about your lifestyle. If that restricts your lifestyle, if you can't go out to, food, uh, to, to dinner as much with your friends, that's fine. You are taking care of the things that are the priority, that are the kingdom priority. And I think that's going to make God happy. On one other note, let me, let me just address this question. Because anytime you talk about giving, it comes up. Can I tithe to a missionary? Right? You bring this up. Can I give my 10% to a missions organization or a nonprofit? No, you can't. Why? Because a tithe is designed for the people who are ministering to you in a church community. But here's what you can do. You can give charitably in the third category to a missions organization. Or just restrict your lifestyle even more and give to that agency. Here's the thing. If we're going to be funding the kind of ministry that really cares for us, it's going to mean a, a hit on our lifestyle. That's okay. It's really okay. Because, I'm going to quote Britt Nelson here who said this, um, hard work is worth it if your end goal is worthy. And the kingdom is really worthy, right? Anyone who's received ministry who's here today knows the kingdom is worthy. And so I want to invite you to think about that. Give first, live second. Let's pray.